My guest is David Haney. Baron Haney of Chiswick is a distinguished British diplomat who's had a long and distinguished career in the British diplomatic service, including the UK ambassador to the United Nations in New York and the UK's permanent representative to the European Union in Brussels. Welcome to the podcast, David. Hello. Right. We're going to talk essentially, David, about Britain's standing in the world, but also Britain's positioning in the world in this post-Brexit world we're all living in. But we, before we do that, I can't resist temptation to ask you to walk a bit down memory lane. You were, as a young diplomat, clearly heavily involved in the negotiations of the UK leading up to its uh, accession to the, to the EEC, as it was then. Could you give me an idea of what, what role you played before you could join the EEC and, and how straightforward or even how complex you found the negotiation with our future European partners? Yes, surely. Uh, and if I might, I'd go back even a tiny little bit further than you have because um, during the, uh, my early years at the UK delegation to the European communities when we were outside in the 1960s, um, I was involved as the Brussels end of the Kennedy round of trade negotiations. Right. So I think I'm probably the only British uh, civil servant who was involved in the Kennedy round who can tell people what it was like before we joined and I can tell you it was not good. Uh, we were basically marginalized in the Kennedy round. The Kennedy round, the big deals in the Kennedy round of trade negotiations were fixed between the US, the European communities and the Japanese. And we were then told what the score was and we were had virtually no room for maneuver. What room we had, we made good use of because Roy Denman was the uh, our representative in Geneva and he was a brilliant uh, master of detail, but he he recognised, like all the rest of us, that we were really a fifth wheel in all this, and that's where we'll be in future in world trade negotiations, if I've got it right. <laughs> so the UK decides to enter into serious negotiations again with its future EEC partners. What was your role in those negotiations? And I said well, earlier, of course, there was a long was hiatus after Harold Wilson uh, put in the application because then came de Gaulle's second veto, and then came a long period of trench warfare until General de Gaulle made a fundamental error and had a referendum on a rather irrelevant issue of the powers of the Senate, uh, and lost it and resigned. And shortly after that, and once President Pompidou had been elected uh, as President of France, it became clear that he was contemplating the a change in de Gaulle's policy of preventing Britain joining at any cost and rather to negotiate the best terms he could uh, for France which involved getting the financial settlement dealt with first and then letting Britain in and that became and then at that point we knew we, we were we were playing for real for the first time since General de Gaulle's first veto back in 63. So uh, in that negotiation, I worked alongside Roy Denman on all the trade policy issues. I was particularly involved in a little fix that we managed to work out with the Commission, which enabled Hong Kong to become a beneficiary of the generalized scheme of preferences and meant that we did not have to push Hong Kong issues in the negotiations. I worked alongside Raymond Bell on financial and budgetary issues. Uh, and I then did something which taught me a very great deal, which is I was the number two to Ian Sinclair, the chief legal advisor 
on the drafting of the accession treaty and all the protocols, declarations and so on that go with it. And there I learned a huge amount about how the EU does business because of course the treaty drafting was conducted in a group which contained all four of the applicants, including Norway, right. because it had not yet at that time uh, lost its referendum. Right. So the UK, let's fast forward briefly, the, the UK joins the EEC on the 1st of January 1973. So you become the first chef de cabinet chief of staff of the first British Conservative Commissioner, correct? Correct, yes. And uh, of course, uh, George Thompson was the Labour Commissioner uh, and, uh, and uh, he had a team as well. But uh, Christopher Soames was very much the senior of the two because he had been in Paris, of course, as ambassador. He knew Ottilie, the president of the commission, quite well. He got on extremely well with him. And so he was treated in all respects by Ottilie as the person to talk to, uh, particularly when the going got uh, rough after uh, the Conservatives lost the 1975 election. I did one of these podcasts, David, a few months ago with a distinguished Belgian diplomat, I'm sure very good friend of yours, Franz Van Dahl. And I asked him the question, um, what was the feeling like amongst the six uh, existing members when the UK joined, finally, in 1973? And he said it was excitement. Did you, do you agree with that? Did you sense there was an excitement around that the UK was finally inside the club? Yes, I did. I did. It was, uh, it was a heady moment. It didn't last very long because, of course, it was overtaken by the Yom Kippur War, uh, the quadrupling of the oil price, and the near collapse of uh, Western economies uh, through uh, a combination of stagflation, which we may be about to become all too familiar with again. Uh, That was um, a short period of elation, but during that time we were able to get quite a lot done. We were able to wind up a, a, a nascent trade war with the United States, which had been brewing under the previous commission over um, preferences given by African countries to the, to, to, to the European communities. Uh, we were able to uh, open the, the Tokyo round of trade negotiations with the EU and the commission in the lead. Uh, we were able to widen hugely the European community's worldwide outreach because of the arrival in the African, Caribbean and Pacific uh, group of all ex-British colonies worldwide and because Christopher Soames also worked very hard to build up relations, for example, with a little group that nobody had ever heard of at the time called the Association of Southeast Asian Nations Uh, and by giving uh, preferences under the generalised preference scheme to some of their main products to really get a very close relationship, which has lasted to this day. Right. So moving to around 1984, you become the UK's permanent representative to the European Union. And I asked, I mentioned that because... 85. 85, forgive me. Um, there's a lot of disagreement seems to be out there, even now, about the extent to which the UK had influence, broadly defined. Some people say that the UK had enormous influence. Some say, if you listen to us, pro-Brexit... Uh, politician here, for example, in the UK, would say we didn't have enough influence. In broad terms, what was your experience as the perm rep at the time of British influence inside the the EEC? Well, uh, we had a lot of influence, is the truth, and most of those uh, Brexit supporters probably weren't born then, so I don't imagine they had much uh, experience of of all that. But we had a lot of experience. First of all, you have to remember that we had concluded a really bruising difficult budgetary negotiation to sort out the impact 
of the European budget on Britain, which was inequitable, which we'd said at the time of our accession would be inequitable and which the EU recognised that it was inequitable, but it was very difficult to sort it out. And Mrs Thatcher did that. I spent four and a half years of my life back in London as the Under Secretary, uh, helping uh, and advising her on that. And that was a huge step forward, but it also reminded the members, the other members, uh, that we were, could be influential even if we were isolated, as long as what we were trying to do was within the overall boundaries of what the other member states could agree to, as they did at Fontainebleau. So when I arrived in 1985, there had just been a big bust up over the calling of um, the Intergovernmental Conference to write the first big revision of the uh, Treaty of Rome, uh, which was to be undertaken with the objective of creating a single market and also of establishing a common foreign and security policy. And although, uh, because of the way it came about at Milan, there were a lot of bitter feelings, particularly Mrs. Thatcher felt she had been uh, marginalized at that moment, she didn't allow that to stop us negotiating for a single European Act, as it came to be called, mm -hmm. which met everyone's interests, Britain's and the other member states, including Spain and Portugal, which were on the point of joining at that time. So what the Single European Act that came out was a very great deal closer to the British wish list than it was probably to pretty well anyone else in the European community's wish list, and it worked. And the, uh, I mean, the real test I always put to people uh, is, do you think that Europe is a better place now because of the single market? Answer invariably, yes. Uh, if that's so, who do you think ensured that the single market happened? answer between clenched teeth. Well, the <laughs> British did, of course. So you became permanent representative just about the same time as Jacques Delors became president of the European Commission, is that right? Uh, no, he was, he was a little bit before, because he and Arthur Cofield had written the white paper right. on which the uh, bust-up over procedure, which was a procedural issue about whether or not there needed to be treaty change. Uh, Mrs Thatcher wished to do it by a kind of gentleman's agreement that people would accept a majority expressed in the council, but wouldn't change the treaty. Uh, I never thought that was a viable approach myself, but I arrived just after the bust up, right. and I spent the next three or four months basically negotiating with David Williamson as my co-negotiator on a construct which would convince Mrs Thatcher, as it did, that it was worth changing the treaty to get it. Is there an element that uh, the single market, and, and even enlargement, is often uh, cited as a, an example of British influence inside the, the European Union, uh, of it being maybe it's import, their importance being overstated, exaggerated? I say that because the, the single market, as you know, is, is, has many gaps and holes in it. It is not a perfect construct even now, is it? Well, the single market in goods is a perfect construct. The single market in services is a work in, in progress right. still. But don't underestimate the amount of progress that's been made. You can just hear the uh, hand-wringing that goes on uh, in Britain now are being excluded from the single market in yeah. services. So I think that's overdone. Right. Frankly, if you look at the way the European economy has developed, how we came through the great financial crises of the 2008-9 uh, and so on, I think that most economists would say the single market played a huge 
part in ensuring that Europe came through unharmed and more prosperous. Uh, and uh, so I would never, never give ground to those who say the single market doesn't matter. And if there's anything more ironical than the fact that it is the European community that is throwing the single market in our teeth now that we are outside, I can think of nothing more odd than that since we were the great champions of that single market. What do you say to the critics who said at the time, certainly, and even now lingering all these years later, that one reason why, or the main reason why the UK championed enlargement to the East Central Europe was because it wanted to, in effect, weaken the European Union as opposed to strengthen it? I think that was true of some people in the British government. Uh, it was not true of the advice that I gave to ministers. I told them always, don't misunderstand this. Enlargement to include Spain and Portugal, to include the uh, EFTA countries, to include then the Central and East European countries. Uh, it will, of course, uh, have some uh, weakening aspects to it, but it will also have strengthening aspects. It will be a combination of approfondissement and élargissement, as the French always put it. And so don't think that we will simply end up with a weaker, more vociferous uh, European community which would suit us better. We won't. We'll end up with one that's doing a lot more things than the European community is doing now. I always gave that advice. Uh, I think some people listen to it, but I, you are correct that some in the Conservative Party who subsequently called themselves Eurosceptics uh, did believe that through enlargement you could weaken the European community. They proved to be wrong. It's obviously every member state defends its own interests, not just the United Kingdom. But there's a, quite a well-established view out there uh, that, it's, even though it's now historical because the UK has left the European Union, that in many areas of policy uh, and initiative, the UK was, was, was difficult, was reluctant, were recalcitrant, tried to delay or block initiatives. How much of that, that kind of broad view do you think is justified? I think there were justification of it, and sometimes we did that to an, un, to a, an unreasonable extent. But on the whole, we usually usually raised problems and difficulties which were needed to be discussed, thought through, thrashed out, and compromises sought. And then we were prepared to make the compromises, as we did at Maastricht, for example, and as we did at Lisbon. So uh, I, I think the uh, criticism that we were often the back marker has some uh, right in it, uh, but I would say myself that we were the grit that produced the pearl as well. So let's move forward now, David, to the, to the present day. The UK has left the European Union, we know that. This whole issue about not just the, about the UK standing in the world, but the UK's positioning in the world. How does the UK position itself in this post-Brexit world, presumably using, uh, at least to some extent, membership of the organisation, which it is still a member of? Um, how, would, how would you be advising the government, if you were still in that kind of position, to pr project e UK influence across the globe? Well, I'm not in the government, so I'm not advising them and haven't been so for 20 years. And um, I have to say that I'm deeply critical of many of the present government, British government's policies publicly in Parliament and in writing. But uh, what I would be saying to them, I think, first of all, I, I accept Brexit is done. Uh, there's no point in trying to undo it. Uh, we have to try and make it more positive, more constructive than it's been made so far 
with this very confrontational policy that the present British government has pursued and which I do not support. Uh, as for the Britain's uh, role in the world, uh, I think a lot of damage has been done by this, uh, in my view, trivial branding exercise called Global Britain, right. uh, which um, nobody knows what it means, really, and which, as I say often to people, it must be great fun being a British ambassador now, going in to see the country to which you're accredited and saying, uh, we've got this wonderful idea called Global Britain, and the first news is we're going to cut your aid budget by two-thirds. Right. So, but membership... Uh, of these other organizations such as the uh, permanent member of the UN Security Council, a leading, certainly leading European member of, of NATO, the G7 and so on, the, the, the UK still has clout even though we've left the European Union, don't you agree? Uh, the UK has position. Uh, I would be a little bit careful about the word clout. Right. And I would also say that the UK outside the European Union has to realize that it needs to work with others in harmony with others if it is to enhance its global influence. It can't do so as it did when it was in the European Union by influencing the European Union policy and then using its position in all those institutions you referred to, G7, UN, etc., uh, as a magnifying, as a kind of echo chamber for what it was doing in the European Union. That we lost. We haven't yet found I think the way of using uh, the position that we have uh, properly. The UN is at the moment very severely damaged by the invasion of Ukraine and by the Security Council's inability, which would have been the same at any moment from 1945 to the present day if one of the permanent members had committed an act of aggression. It's called the veto and it's built in there. So the UN is not terribly easy to use and the British government has made it a lot more difficult to use by that uh, savage cut in our aid budgets, uh, the 0.7 to 0.5, which was uh, against our domestic law, and which has meant that at the United Nations we have moved from being probably the leader in development policy worldwide to being seen as uh, an Undersecretary General of the UN who was talking to a group last week called it uh, a laughing stock because we have cut our aid to a lot of the poorest developing countries by a huge amount and we have cut our contribution to a large number of the multi-annual programs the UN runs by even more. So we haven't started terribly well, that's for sure. The Commonwealth remains a kind of gleam in some uh, people's eye, but it is ne has never been and is not an alternative to uh, groupings based on countries of the rest of Europe uh, with whom we have so much in common. So by all means, let us make the most of the Commonwealth, but as you will have seen from uh, last week's meeting in Kigali, they can't agree themselves on all that much. And some of the most important countries in the Commonwealth, like India, are absolutely not going to allow the Commonwealth to take over their foreign policy. So that's not a very good route. And then up to now, we have barred ourselves from using the obvious route, which is to get a strong, structured working relationship from the outside with the European Union. Uh, we, we rejected that. It was in the agreement that was negotiated originally, uh, by both uh, Theresa May and Boris Johnson, and then three weeks after we left, he dropped it. 
uh, and he said we didn't want to have anything to do with it. In the area of foreign security policy? In the area of foreign security policy. I believe that will have to be revisited. I believe it should be revisited, and I believe it is in the interests of both the European Union and us that it should be. And I think you can see in the context of Ukraine just why that is so, because that those are the group of countries with whom we are working most closely, but we're doing so without any proper structured arrangements. I believe we need those, and if you look at the NATO uh, strategic concept that has now been adopted for the next 10 years. You will see in paragraph 43, I'm sorry <laughs> to drag you down into the weeds, some very important words about the non-EU members of NATO helping the EU on security policy. Well, I'm waiting to see what the British government does about that. It needs to do something about it. It needs to work out a relationship in which we can can be the can cooperate on security issues, both procurement issues and security policy issues. You say there's a you lament the lack of a of a structured underpinning of cooperation between the UK and EU in foreign and security policy. But nonetheless, uh, in a pragmatic way, the the two sides are working quite closely together on Ukraine, are they not? And so maybe whether or not there's a, a structured element or backdrop to all that is of a secondary uh, importance? Uh, I wouldn't say uh, you are correct. I would agree with you. They have, over Ukraine, found so much in common uh, that they are working quite closely together. But are we sure that that will continue? I'm not so sure. Uh, the, the, the government here in London is uh, rather erratic in some of its uh, decision-making. For example, uh, President Biden were no longer the President of the United States uh, and President Trump got back again. Uh, could we be sure that the British government won't uh, navigate off in that direction as it did when President Trump was in office? Uh, so I don't, uh, I believe myself that the, the unity that we've achieved so far over Ukraine is highly, highly laudable and Desirable. I strongly support it. Every single statement I have made in the House of Lords and elsewhere has supported the government's policy on Ukraine. But I believe it is fragile, and I think we need to underpin it with something much more durable and long-lasting in the form of a, uh, a, a structured cooperation, which will not prevent either side mm -hmm. taking its own decisions, the EU or the UK but it will mean that they will look to each other as the first port of call when the going gets rough, when a crisis arises. What, in your view, are the, are the strengths and limitations of bilateral co cooperation between, between the UK and certain key member states? Obviously, I'm thinking about France and Germany in the context of this so-called E3 construct when it comes to Iran, but is there a scope, is there potential for the UK to do more in the, in the bilateral sphere, or will that create more enemies than, than allies? Well, I think the, the UK spends a lot of time trying to build up bilateral links with the 27 uh, other European countries, um, which is in itself desirable, but they do so in a way which I think creates a lot of friction, because they make it sound as if it's they're building it up against the Brussels institutions. Well, that won't work. Uh, for one thing, as far as economic sanctions are concerned, the decisions are taken in Brussels. As long as uh, the action uh, to follow up many of these things worldwide, that's the external action service. 
we need to have a working relationship both bilaterally with the 27 member states and we need that with the institutions too. And just remember an old adage that always sticks with me about Brussels, 27 yeses in capitals, one no in Brussels. Right. A final question, Dave, if I may, on, on the G7, since it's topical. Um, what scope do you think there is for the G7 itself, even with the UK nor out of the EU, to have a, a more structured format in the future? Uh, as we know, there's no real secretariat behind the G7. Every 12 months, the presidency changes and it, we kind of start again, uh, from not from scratch, but there's no, there seems to be a certain uh, uh, absence of continuity. Uh, and the thing about the G7, of course, is it's not just the, the, the seven uh, countries, uh, superpowers, if you like, around the table, but at the table also are the President of the European Commission and the President of the European Council. So in that way, all, all bases are covered. Now, is there scope to do more with the G7 in the future? There probably is. I think that the evolution that has taken place and which was reflected to some extent at the NATO summit, whereby a country like Japan mm. uh, has been brought much closer uh, to the other Western allies in the whole spread of foreign policy. That's highly desirable and I think it's probably durable because I think the Japanese have understood and we have understood uh, that uh, their security starts in Europe. Uh, that if Putin gets his way wrecking the UN Charter, wrecking the Paris Charter of 1990, uh, then the next victim could be in the Far East. Uh, and I think that's understood. So I think that the G7 will continue to be important and influential, but as you say, it doesn't have all the structure necessary mm. of for an international organization uh, in proper form. So I think uh, one should be a bit careful about the load that one puts on the bridge. But I think it will continue to be important, as will the involvement of South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand, who were at the summit. As to the British attitude towards the President of the Commission and the, uh, and the President of the Council being at G7 meetings, that's just childish, frankly. You, you can look in all the uh, government um, information here, and they invariably write them out of it. Of course, they invite them when they're in the chair, uh, but they write them out. That's just silly. We've got to get over that sort of childish business. Okay, well, we have to leave it there. David Haney, thank you very much for your time. Okay, thanks a lot, Paul.